Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We return to Acts 7, and what we are going to do is consider another key aspect of Stephen's speech and the resulting martyrdom that he had. If you recall, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was called on the carpet, so to speak, by a local synagogue of which he belonged to, and then later the Sanhedrin, the official religious leaders, and he was given a chance to give answer to charges against him. And he spoke, and it was a very long chapter, a very long speech, and what we sought to do, and, and in that, he, he declared many things to be true. And then as a result of that, he was dragged outside the city and stoned to death. He was, in fact, the very first Christian martyr. Now, last week, what I, or two weeks ago, I tried to pull back the curtain a bit from what he was saying and what the reaction was from the listener. And what I was trying to do in that was I was showing that it all flows from the absolute dominion of sin in the lives of all people. That the key difference between Stephen and his opponents was not that he was a nicer man or a kinder man or he was a smarter man or whatever it might be that we might think, but the key difference between Stephen and everyone else who dragged him out of that city and killed him was that Stephen had been regenerated or made alive or born again by the Spirit of God. That's the only thing that was different, but it was a radical, critical difference. That all of humanity is dead and in and under the power of sin. Now today is a unique kind of sermon because all it really is is an introduction as I was working on my sermon and, and what I intended to try to communicate out of this passage, I began to write my introduction. And when I was to page six of my introduction, I realized it was not an introduction anymore, but it was a sermon. And so I decided instead, what you're going to hear today is nothing but an introduction. So what we're doing right now is introducing the introduction. I plan on doing this by delving into some challenges we face in our culture today with regard to language and meaning. And out of that, I hope that we will see the importance of getting the meaning right when we approach the Bible and what it teaches. In other words, that we would learn to use the words and idea the Bible uses in the way that the Bible actually uses them. And then next week, Lord willing, I want to show you how then there is this common theme that is running through everything that Stephen says. It flows wonderfully through it, holding it all together. And it is a concept or or the idea of deliverance or liberation or salvation and rejection. In other words... I want to have you understand that although the name of Jesus never is mentioned in this speech of his, that nonetheless his presence is clearly seen if only we will let the words say what they're saying. And then from there, my plan is a week after that, if the Lord is pleased, to deal with this chapter one more time and develop for you what I'm going to call a theology of martyrdom and why it matters. Well, that's my introduction to the introduction, so let's get into it. This is going to be a, how do I say this? It's going to be a thinking sermon, okay? Uh, Understand what its purpose is. It is to introduce what we're going to then do. 
So I'm going to be introducing several things that you may or may not know about, and I'm going to be referencing things that you may or may not be comfortable, not in the sense of hearing, but that they're not things that you have studied or heard, and hopefully I can do it in a way that's interesting, engaging, and helpful. It's all about words, though. Words mean something, or nothing, or anything. Now, if they mean something, then you and I can communicate, correct? If they mean nothing, then we have no ability to communicate. And if they mean anything, then when we try to communicate, all we will end up doing is talking past each other. I'm sure you've had that situation where you got in a big argument with somebody else and you're going back and forth and back and forth and it's escalating. And then later on, you find out that actually both of you were saying the same thing just differently and you thought the other person meant something else with those words. This is what happens when words can mean anything rather than something. Cultures are only as strong as their shared values and the ability to communicate those values. And I would argue that the closer any culture is to a proper biblical worldview, then the better off it and its people will be. Well, we see this battle over words rising today in so many different arenas of our society, and it's creating a great strain, division, and confusion for many and many of those would be in this room. The rise of various sub-movements, all flowing out of what's known as a postmodern understanding of reality, has made language an absolute mess. The loss is a, the result is a loss of any real meaning. For all that matters is how one feels about something and whether what is said or used is in agreement with the current approved agenda. You see it with the word science in discussing mandated vaccines or masks. You see it in the world of genders, where male and female means anything or nothing, but definitely not something. In the realm of ethics, this is even more fascinating to observe, although it's disturbing as well. Sexual ethics now exclude only one thing that is definitely wrong. It is declaring that a monogamous heterosexual relationship is the only proper and right relationship and that it must occur only within the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. You can believe anything about sexual ethics you want except for that one. And that is a nature of words. So this whole reworking of language and words is fully ensconced in the church now and its various institutions as well. And as such, it was on my mind as I studied Acts 7. There's a growing influence in the church, specifically the American church, in what is known historically as liberation theology. It is a very popular idea, at times at least, and is found in many circles, but I will be blunt, it is from the very pit of hell. If you were to study this deeply, you would find that it is born out of various older philosophical and theological worldviews. And one of those major influences came from a philosopher named Immanuel Kant, who, pop, who, who made popular the idea, now listen, because this is important, Kant made popular the idea that knowledge is something humans possess, and here's the key word, autonomously. That knowledge is something humans possess autonomously, and it is not contingent upon God or his revelation. And in doing so, what he did is he became another very useful tool in the battle to dismantle the essentials of the Christian faith. I would highly recommend, I've done this in the past and I'll do it again, a book by a woman named Nancy Piercy entitled Told Truth. I believe I left that in the notes that I provided for you so that you can see it. The book's called Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity. She writes about philosophy, but she writes it in a very accessible manner 
but she shows you how we got to where we are at today. Now back to Kant. Kant emphasized the idea of not being influenced by anything except one's moral will. Now, one fascinating aspect to Kant's theory, however, is that he recognized that we are actually still dependent upon external natural laws. And so what it, he understood that in reality there was a contradiction occurring between the idea that we are truly autonomous, meaning a law unto ourself, and yet still responsible and influenced by external sources. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is arguing that you and I are a law unto ourselves. We do not need anything outside of us for reality. At the same time, he recognized that that's nice to say, but we still need to breathe. In other words, I can declare I am free to do as I wish, all I want, but that does not mean I can now fly. And so the trick, he said, was to learn to live in both realities at the same time. But what does that mean? Well, what it means in reality is that we are then required to live in a constant state of denying reality while declaring something to be reality. Let me say it again. It means that we're in a constant state of denying reality while we walk in what we call reality. Now, this creates a lot of challenge or create a lot of challenges for him, and those challenges still exist today in our society. Morality is defined by the individual. We are free, he would say, truly free. We are autonomous, but... But the physical world often stands against that perception of freedom. So at best, we can only suppose or perceive or declare ourselves to be free and ignore the realities that contradict it. Morality, I'm going to repeat that, is defined by the individual. We are free, truly free, but... The physical world often stands against that perception of freedom. So at best, we can only suppose or perceive or declare ourselves to be free and ignore the realities that contradict it. Are you unclear on what I'm saying? Well, let me make it more clear. This challenge of Kant's is at the root of the whole gender debate. You're a man but then you spend enormous energy demanding that everyone see you as a woman. And you demand that all accommodation be made for you, even though you are a man. You declare you are a man. You take on typical male mannerisms. or You declare you're a woman. You declare yourself to take on all the typical mannerisms of a woman. You talk endlessly about how you really are a woman, and you surround yourself with others who affirm that you are a woman. You are, in other words, fighting as hard as you can to function autonomously in a world that is anything but autonomous. I bet you never realize that all you're seeing in the gender debate is Kantian philosophy played out. This is simple Kantian philosophy in action. Kant helped create this two-stage sense of reality and truth. One level is facts or morals or something along that line. And the second level is the facts. So you have morals, values, and then facts or reality, or physical, or whatever you want to see. And it's this idea of two different realities and areas in our mind and functions. Facts will deal with verifiable truth that's publicly accepted, but the idea of values becomes a socially constructed meaning of truth. Facts deal with verifiable truth that is to be publicly accepted, 
and the idea of values is a socially constructed meaning of truth. What is that? Well, this is merely the same argument waged in many different shapes and colors over millennia. Satan ever and always seeks to separate the moral from the physical, the soul from the body. But God created them as one. God always treats humanity holistically. And these two levels are sealed off from one another in Kantian thinking, as well as many other philosophers that built off of him. You are often unaware of this, as so you keep trying, and this is what happens to you in your discussions with people, is that you're unaware often that these two have been sealed off in our society, and you're trying to convince somebody about their morals or their values by appealing to science or reality and not recognizing that they are able to function happily side by side or one on top of the other in their mind. And so maybe you laugh at them, mock them, tease them, get angry with them, roll your eyes at them, but you don't actually understand what's going on, and so you fail to be able to influence them. This is futile in so many ways. If truth is perceived as what I value, then I can recreate truth at will. And so can you. If truth is perceived as what I value, then I can recreate truth at will. So marriage now becomes, I just ask you if this sounds familiar to what you're watching and hearing. So marriage becomes a social construct that can, ex- that can mean just about anything at any time. And since it only exists within my own mind as reality, it's not subject to any of your arguments. What I call marriage is marriage, and there's nothing you can do about it. And if I want to say this is what marriage is, and, or that is what marriage is, or all of these are what marriage is, there is nothing that you can appeal to because it is coming from an autonomous mind that is a law unto itself. Well, this philosophy led to the rise of the liberal church, and that's a technical term. It's not just some liberal church that you call them, oh, those are liberals or something. This is actually a movement, the liberal church. And there arose from them major thinkings within the church at large, the visible church, most definitely in France and Germany. These are the schools that brought these ideas in, and then out from them came a new type of scholar, A key person in that whole movement of scholarly work flowing from a Kantian mindset was a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher. You don't have to spell that. Friedrich Schleiermacher. He brought into these ideas, he he bought into, rather, these ideas in the late 1700s teaching that God could only be experienced through feelings. Did you hear that? That God can really only be experienced through feelings. And you say, okay, so? Well, the result was that he became a major influence in shifting the understanding of how hermeneutics functioned. Hermeneutics is simply the process by which you draw out and understand what the Bible is saying. That's all it is. Hermeneutics is how then do you approach the Bible, read it, and draw from it what it actually is saying. And Schleiermacher bringing this idea that the only way we can really have a relationship or know God is through our feelings, he radically then brought in a whole different way of approaching the Bible and how to understand it. Originally, it had been focused on the methods used to determine the meaning of the text. Actually, what does it say? And consistently, the goal was to understand what the writer or author intended 
to communicate. So it was focused on what did Peter write? What did God write through Matthew, etc.? But it's focused on what did the author intend? Instead of letting the passage say, though, what it says, what Schleiermacher began to push was for how you and I understand it to mean. Can you hear how radically different that is? Think about that. Instead of what does it actually say, what did the writer say, now Schleiermacher says it's more important that we understand what we understand the author said. That is not the same thing, beloved. And I will tell you, as your pastor, I spent the last 25 years pushing against that. And it's a hard push because you and I, we buy into that oftentimes far more than we realize. So what is important is how you and I feel about or perceive the text. So the actual biblical passage became much less important, and what the reader thought the author was really saying became much more important. Again, how does that look? What does that look like? Well, I'll give you an example that works out constantly today. Paul says, in the context of the church, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12, the first part of that, he says, and I... It's very easy to translate from the Greek, and it says this, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, this is in the context of the church. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Very seldom today will you hear from the pulpit or from scholars people who will simply deal with what is actually written. Instead, you'll, you'll hear them take that phrase and they will try to take you behind the text and behind what is actually written. Whether you like it or not is unimportant, just so you know. Whether you approve of that, agree with that, find that offensive, none of that matters except to Schleiermacher and to most Americans. What does it say is all that matters And so today in the pulpits and in the classrooms, the scholars take you behind the text to try to tell you what really is going on, what we think is going on. And so we explain away the text by saying, well, this is merely an expression of the patriarchal society in which Paul grew up in, and and he's just expressing his Hebrew roots, and we need to understand that because in his context, this would be it, but in our context, it would be radically different. Or you'll have others who will argue for this is an expression of the temple prostitution worship that was prominent in the city of Ephesus where this letter was written, or, or to whom it was written. Or it's, it's specifically likely talking about the strange teachings of certain women who are, came up out of the various cultic rituals of pagan worship and that they're having an influence. It's everything and anything but just simply what the text says. This new type of scholarship affected the church as a whole, and it is definitely felt in the American church. The result being a rise of something that is called fundamentalism, which came into its own as a result of this growing influence into the church. This, along with many other new ideas about the Bible, gave rise to what is commonly called modernism. There will be no test, but you need to get comfortable with these terms. Many new ideas about the Bible came in to the American church and gave rise to what's called modernism. Modernism argued, because we're not dealing with the text anymore, but how we understand the text, it gave rise to a whole bunch of new meanings and new doctrines related to the Bible, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and others. And over time, they began to radically redefine these doctrines, but in reality, all they were really doing is rejecting the doctrines. As a result, key non-negotiables were established as the fundamentals of the faith. Things such as the inerrancy, without error, the Bible was given to us. 
the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, bodily resurrection, the authenticity of miracles. These were marked down as the fundamentals of that time because they were the ones that were being redefined from what the Bible said to what we understood the Bible to say, all because of Schleiermacher, and all of that is because Schleiermacher drank deeply from Kantian philosophy. These doctrines, like in Aaron's or the virgin birth, they were good and right, but they became roundly ridiculed. And so anyone who held to that was called a narrow-minded, bigoted, immature thinker. Why? Because the biblical text itself was not seen as truly important in itself. Rather, it was important only in the manner a person believed it to be helpful or true. If you want to see this in the most simplest way, go to most any Bible study you go to, you're invited to attend and watch the people go around the room and tell you what they think it means to them. That is Schleiermacher, kindergarten level. That's all it is. What do you care what it means to you? And what do I care what it means to me? What matters is what it means. Denominations were split. New churches were started, and many people found that friendships were shattered in this battle over the fundamentalists, the fundamentals. So many friendships are shattered in the midst of the battle over time. The issue of fundamentalism subsided as each side ultimately ended up going their own way. Essentially what happened is that they agreed to a ceasefire and went on with separate lives. Now there's many other examples, but this is enough, I hope, for the point that I'm actually trying to make and I have yet to make it. It was about here I realized that we're going to do a different sermon today. The shift did not happen overnight, beloved. It was actually through a thousand cuts. The cuts started in academia, meaning the schools, universities, and seminaries, where unique views and new perspectives were given space to be explored. Let me say again that in these colleges and seminaries, new ideas, unique views were now given the space to be explored. That's all we're doing. We're just exploring these. Nothing more. For the average person then, academia seemed so far removed from their lives that they found it easy to ignore. Until, that is, until they found out that the next generation drank deeply from the well of those very ideas. And you and I see this today still as we send our young adults to schools that promulgate these theories of knowledge and meaning in every subject, and then we scratch our heads when we wonder what, how it is that they came out the other end and they have moved beyond the small-minded thinking of their parents and elders. Academia is filled with those who would accept the words of a philosopher named Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida, who argued, here's a quote, the speaker's meaning has no more authority than the hearer's interpretation, and thus intention cannot outweigh impact. Let me say it again. Jacques Derrida argues that the speaker, the Bible, the preacher, whatever it is, the speaker's meaning has no more authority than the hearer's interpretation, and thus intention, the author's intention, cannot outweigh the impact of the hearer. Notice what was said. First, the author's meaning is no more important than how the hearer is affected by it. 
And yet, in the Christian faith, the authorial intent, the intent of the author is at the very core of what is Bible interpretation. What did God actually say? Not, what do we think it means? Nor, how we feel about what he said. The second thing about Jacques Derrida is that he argues that the way the words impact the hearer, no matter if it's intended to do so or not, is just as important. The way the words impact the hearer, no matter if it is intended to do so or not, is just as important. This is seen time and time again today. You tell a woman who has purchased a coffee from you to have a good day, ma'am, and she explodes because you offended her by assuming her gender. And you wonder, how did I get into this? I didn't intend that. doesn't matter if you intended it, beloved. Not anymore. All that really matters is how did it impact them. Your intention has no value as relate, in relationship to what the hearer is impacted. This is all flowing from first men like Kant then Schleiermacher, and now Jacques Derrida, who is one of the key proponents of this way of thinking. Now, to see this in the current setting, you only have to look at the term racism. The original definition would be this, discriminating against someone based upon their race or skin color, or by having prejudice against them based on race or skin color. Pretty simple. In fact, most of you, I'd say something along those lines is what you define racism. Unfortunately, the world around you does not define it that way anymore. They've changed that. And they didn't ask if you agreed, nor if you care. So one influential individual in this redefinition is a man by the name of Dr. Roberts of Stanford University, who defines it now as a system of advantage based on race. The system is virtually impossible to escape. Those are his words. It is a system of advantage based on race, and the system is virtually impossible to escape. In fact, he goes on to say that there is a passive racism that is evidenced by those who are not actively pushing against a perceived system of racism. What he means by that is, For you to say that you're not a racist because you don't have anything against another race is, in fact, racist. You cannot escape the systems in place, and the systems is what is racist, and you are part of it. So this whole thinking and redefinition continues by saying that any approved, keyword there, approved oppressed minority, because there's other minorities that are not approved. But as long as you belong to the approved oppressed minority, anything they say cannot be racist, because racism is all about power structures rather than merely an individual antipathy or aversion toward another race. So I can be a racist, but a person who feels I'm a racist, may not be a racist simply because they belong to the proper group. Now, the reality is that this whole system of thinking is now firmly established from top to bottom in our society. And to think this is not present in the colleges or seminaries funded by the church is simple folly. Pastors are stepping into pulpits throughout the land with minds infected with the evil idea that what is actually said in the Bible is not important, or at least not as important as how you react or feel about it. Doubt me? Go to any and every website you can of churches and see how many of them advertise their sermons as being relevant. And it is pure and simple being driven by the hearer and how they feel rather than simply what says God. This is such a hard thing to battle 
Because often those doctrines and ideas are brought in through the most subtle of means. But listen, always they are brought in through language. Always they're brought in through words. Incredible damage can begin to occur with the simple statement, now listen, I'm not saying this is correct. I just think it's worth giving thought and consideration. Let's have a conversation. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's true. I just think that it's worth exploring. Let's explore it together. And you explore that long enough, and you'll find you're no longer exploring. You're partaking Again, how does this work today in the Christian world? Does God forbid sexual activity outside of marriage? I'm not asking you to speak, but answer that question. As a Christian, does God forbid sexual activity outside of marriage? Now, if you say yes, and I say, okay, well, then show me a passage that says so, from the Bible, you may come to a passage like this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification or holiness, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Pretty straightforward. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, what is that? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. But here's how it's worked out today in many churches, books, and schools. You will likely hear that this idea of immorality is not actually talking about sex outside of marriage at all. But in fact, it's actually all about temple prostitution And therefore, it's not about sex, but actually about worship. And since we don't have temple prostitutes in our land, you are free. And this has just enough truth in it that it will then cause you to question all sorts of other things. What else has my pastor lied to me about? What else is not true? What else is that? All because you believe the lie that is done in words about a basic doctrine. It's just simply an age-old tactic of redefining terms piece by piece toward a new standard. We're still not where I'm trying to get to. Now we get to where I'm trying to get to. With all of that as background, there arose a philosophy that was born out of Marxism. And... Marxism, if you didn't know, is a philosophical view. It's not a government way. It's not a way of government, but it's a philosophy. And as Marxism grew within the world, it influenced the church, and this philosophy and system became entrenched in Latin America, where the idea of liberation theology took root in the 1960s. Liberation theology, another technical phrase. What liberation theology did was it took the idea of the gospel or good news and salvation and deliverance, and they redefined their meanings. So now what sin is, is the oppression of the poor. What salvation is, is the liberation of the poor by whatever means is necessary. It's worth noting that oppression was very real in Latin America, and that made it all the more attractive to the masses as they were hearing people preach it. Now, it started in the Roman Catholic Church, but it rapidly moved into the evangelical church in Latin America. And by the 1970s, evangelical leaders, both there and in North America, were buying into it and teaching it. Now that then got picked up within the black churches of America and created what was known as black liberation theology. A major influence was a man named James Cone, C-O-N-E, James Cone, who strongly 
advocated that the church in America was systemically racist and that the blacks should leave it for their own churches and their own theology. Since that time, there also now has arisen a thing called Palestinian liberation theology and feminist liberation theology. All of these groups, though, use the same philosophical roots that I've just spent all this time talking about, and all of them make the Bible teach a whole different set of ideas by using the words differently. So sin is oppression, especially socially and economically of certain groups of people. Salvation is learning to love your neighbor, for there is no barrier of sin between man and God. Justice is to know God means you practice social justice. So if you are going to understand justice, the only way you can understand it is by buying into social justice because the God of the Bible is a God about social justice. Any of this sound familiar in the current day situation? I'm not even to current day. This is just what's been going on for the last three, four hundred, five hundred years. So this whole idea of liberation theology, it's the idea that there was a need for a prism or a filter through which to read the Bible. And here's what is fascinating. When liberation theology began to find its place in church, it was the result of Marxism. And here's a, here's a statement that was given by one of the proponents of liberation theology back in the 60s. Listen to this carefully. It found that the filter in Marxism was helpful, and it was argued within the evangelical church as being a helpful, I quote, analytical tool in understanding both the Bible and society. We have heard the same thing being repeated today just with CRT, critical race theory. So what do you think my point is? In the American church today, this whole liberation theology is rapidly gaining ground. It's just the old lie in new packaging. It is because schools and leaders in the pulpit have abandoned the meaning of words and are now recreating these words to mean whatever is the cultural issue of the day. And so we can hear pastors say that God is found among the oppressed people of the world. That those who are kept at the bottom socioeconomic levels of society is where God dwells. And that we need to lift them up out of that place. We need to liberate them. We need to bring them salvation. However, the how of this is where things get a bit interesting, to say the least. You have others who will say that if we are serious about multi-ethnic churches, then we need to rethink who is in charge, who has the decision-making authority, and how money is dispersed, and why. We need to dismantle the power structures. But when you ask questions, you find it's merely liberation theology with new clothes. This is all seen in the rising cry throughout the so-called evangelical church for reparations and redistribution of wealth and power. And when asked how much will be enough, the answer honestly and perhaps surprisingly to you comes back that it will never be enough. There is no limit. But, now here I try to turn the corner, so listen. You have to understand that that's not the real issue. All of this stuff swirling around that you get so angry over and maybe you tweet about or post on Facebook or this or that, that these are not the real issues. There's actually a darker, far more insidious reality that's going on in all of this verbal salad that's being tossed about. And it starts all the way back in Genesis 3 where Satan said to Eve, indeed, did God actually say? 
and the battle over words began. At the core of all of this is simply a battle for truth. And the Bible would say that truth can never be known by experience, but only through words. And words must mean something, and when it comes to the Bible and theology, words are absolutely necessary. And so liberation theology and liberal theology follow this long history of redefining terms. And the key one that is what happened with Stephen in Acts 7, you must understand. This whole battle of words and their meaning has been going on since the time began. And what Stephen simply did in Acts 7 is he brought up and worked through the text a common theme of being rescued, delivered, saved, or liberated. And so I invite you this week to read through his speech this week and see if you can circle all of the common themes where he is mentioning those ideas. He's using words, and he's using words out of the Scripture, and he's declaring them to these people, and they are angry because they will not accept their meaning. They reject those meanings, and they redefine them to mean something else so that Jesus is not Lord, and therefore they are not guilty of murdering him, though God raised him from the dead. Stephen chooses the characters out of the Old Testament very carefully. They're some of the favorites of Israel. These are the mighty men of faith, used by God in glorious ways for the good of the nation. But they were all talking about something and someone better, namely Jesus the Messiah. So turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4 as we draw all of this together. Why did Jesus come? In all of this time, I thought it was worth your time to hear it and understand that what's happening before your eyes in our society is nothing strange, and it's not hard to understand. It's been going on since the garden. But why did Jesus come? Well, he came, the Bible says, to save. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to rescue. He came to deliver us out of the domain of sin and death and into the kingdom of of life, true life. This is the liberation that the Bible talks about, a liberation from not our oppressors, from ourselves. A liberation that delivers us from the power of Satan, a liberation that takes us from the state of enmity with God and makes us his children. It's a liberation that declares that though our body may die through Jesus Christ, We shall be raised to life internal. A true liberation, a glorious liberation. But to love this requires that you recognize that this fallen age has only one thing in mind and only one thing. Now, it will come in an incredible array of colors and shapes, but always it will come as if it is an angel of light. And everything that you are buying into, perhaps, as the means by which we might be rescued from this evil that is around us and that you see encroaching and that is attacking even the minds of your own children and you're heartbroken over it and you're seeing things change before your very eyes, you are thinking about there is some way a savior. Unfortunately for many, it has nothing to do with Christ. And it has everything to do with the here and now. It will come as an angel of light promising you prosperity and goodness and safety and protection. But it's really that same old lie has God really said. And in and through it, every incarnation, all of it is saying that salvation means something other than salvation from the wrath of God due to our sin. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5, we see that played out, and I want to just take a moment for us to set our minds upon it. 
3 through 5, Paul writes, and even if our gospel, the good news, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake." In verse 3, he says everything that he is doing, it's all about the gospel. But the question is, in Paul's, in Paul's effort to explain this, he's, he's trying to show you why then do people not see it as the gospel. Remember, gospel means good news, glorious news. Why is this thing he preaches not seen by people as the gospel? Why is it that we constantly have to push back against other types of teachings that come into the church rather than the simplicity of the gospel? Why do we keep leaning on new methods and ideas other than the gospel for our good and well-being? It is simply put because we do not see it as the gospel. It is veiled. It's hidden from the minds of the unbeliever. Now, how does that happen? Well, verse 4 tells us, in whose case the God of this world, which is another way of saying Satan, has actually blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So in in a unique way, Satan takes the minds of all who are not a Christian and blinds them. And so when they hear you talk about the gospel, they hear the gospel preached, it doesn't resonate with them because their minds are blinded. In fact, they're doubly blind because the Bible says in Romans 1, and we spent that time two weeks ago looking at that in 118 and following, that in fact, the unbelieving mind is actively suppressing the truth that we ourselves know there is God and we will not honor him as God nor give him thanks. Instead, we press it down and it is our own blindness due to our sin. On top of that, you doubly are blind because then alongside you comes Satan even more blinding you. What is he hiding from you? That the gospel is good news. And because we have that, and then we make church all about the unbeliever, and we're trying to figure out ways to get people into the church and have their rear end stay in the church, the external building, that gathering, We have to constantly be recrafting our sermons and our actions so that we can appeal to them because the one thing they don't find appealing and precious is the only thing the church is for, the gospel. And we scratch our head. Why is this happening? Because they're blinded. You were blinded. And out of that blindness flows all of this stuff from Kant and Schleiermacher and Derrida and Cohn and of countless other men and women throughout the centuries. But what is the core of the gospel? We'll look at verse 4, the second half. That they might not see the light of the gospel. What is that? The glory of Christ who is the image of God, that ultimately what he is hiding is how absolutely soul-changing, life-altering, glorious the person of Jesus Christ is. And so I can say that in every possible way, even to myself, and it is shocking how often we say, "Uh uh-huh. And that's even as a Christian. How much more dark is the mind of the unbeliever? Which is why I spent the whole time, the the sermon before, talking about the absolute need of a regenerated heart, a heart made alive by the Holy Spirit, because alone we'll never get there. Alone, no one will ever get there. We'll always end up going down some new philosophy, thinking it will liberate us from the very thing that is dwelling within our own soul, and that is sin, and we cannot be delivered from that except by one who is sinless. In other words, Jesus Christ. So what must Paul and you and I preach? Look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves merely as your bondservants, 
For whose sake? Their sake? No, for the sake of Jesus. Now listen, why do you not share the gospel? Why do you not preach the gospel? Some of you know you ought to. Some of you are constantly talking about how you want to or think you should. Maybe you're giving uh, little notes to people. Hey, pray for me that I might be able to maybe share the gospel with so-and-so. But you've been asking that same prayer request for 15 years, and you've never gotten around to sharing the gospel. Why? I will guarantee you that most of the time, it is simply because you have somehow made the gospel about you. And you don't think that you're going to be good enough at giving the gospel. And so you stumble over you and your skills and your wisdom and your ability to say things in such a way that somehow, if I say it the right way, I will help a person see the glory of Christ. And beloved, you can't. None of you can. I can't. I've learned that the most painful way over all these years of preaching here and another seven, eight years preaching in LA. I understand. I cannot convince you and you cannot convince anyone else of what is true. Only God can. That's all he's asking you to do, though, is declare it. Say it. Talk about the glory of Christ. Talk about what Christ has done, who he is, what he is, what he has accomplished, and leave the rest to God. Get yourself out of it. And you'll do much better. The only redistribution between of, of, of power and wealth in the true gospel is that between you and the Lord. When you come to faith, beloved, you declare Jesus as what? Lord. That's power. And Jesus himself said to you, as bluntly as it can be said, you cannot serve God and money. Though we keep trying to figure out a way we can. The only redistribution of wealth and power is between you and God as you approach the gospel. And what you see going on in all the churches around you and denominations and schools throughout the land is simply an availing of the real gospel of liberation. It's a, it's a diverting us to see other saviors and other hopes, but, what, but they're all broken wells that can never bring satisfaction. So what happened to Stephen? Why was he arrested and why was he lied about? Because he was preaching liberation. But that liberation is only found in Jesus. So what was it that made them drag him out and stone him to death? He showed them that God is the only true liberator and savior and that they would not see that because their minds were blinded and so they killed him instead. If you're going to share Christ only when you know that it's going to bring about your comfort and maybe the salvation of a soul, you will never preach Christ. But when you become like Stephen... And you're convinced that Christ alone saves, that the power of God unto salvation is and only is the gospel. And he never asked you to worry about anything beyond that. You will then become burdened for the souls of those around you. Beloved, what are your saviors? What are the saviors perhaps you hold to far more jealously than you do Jesus? Ask yourself these questions. What or whom do you obey? What or or whom captures your time, your money, and your energy? When you sit and speak to others about the events of the day, what is the hope you point them to? Beloved, this discussion is not conceptual. It's an issue of true worship and true deliverance. What are the wells from which you are drinking and finding your satisfaction? What do you daydream about that brings you hope? My last words are this. 
Think carefully, beloved. Think very carefully. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do pray that that's what we all shall do from top to bottom, young and old alike. What do we hope? What do we find our delight in? What is our purpose? Where is our treasure? Who is our Lord? We can say it in so many different ways, Father, but it all comes back to this. Are our eyes veiled by Satan? Or have we truly seen that Jesus is altogether glorious, that he is our Lord, our source of salvation, our purpose, and our hope? Father, I pray that you would push us to never give up the truth of the word. I pray for the young men like Matt Miller and and Grayson as they are looking forward into their ministry rather than back like myself. I pray, Father, that you would put upon them such a burden that they cannot escape the necessity to simply say to the people with absolute assurance, thus says the Lord, and then begin to open the word. Cause us all to demand that of ourselves and from those we listen to. We thank you for your patience with us. We ask in your son's name. Amen.